Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's Brian Bowling. With me as always is Brandon Odo. This is our one year anniversary of the podcast and so we have a very special guest today. We're very excited to welcome Dr. Scott Weingart from the MCRIT podcast. Brandon, I don't know about you, but um, MCRIT was probably the biggest influence in my career early on in terms of education, uh, both for myself and a desire to go into podcasting and do medical education. And I learned a ton about critical care early on from this podcast. So we're super excited to have Scott on the show. Yeah, I can honestly say it's been a big influence on me, both as a clinician and on sort of our online educational activities. Yeah, so I think we're so we're really uh, excited to have him here today. And, uh, and more than a little starstruck probably too. So, but we're going to do a case and, uh, I'm going to kick it over to Brandon. Who's going to set us up and we'll get going. Hi, right, Scott. Well, I'm, what I'm most excited about is to, uh, put you in the hot seat. So <laughs> you where I are, live, brother. Yeah, you are in your emergency department as you like to be. Um, and you get a call from EMS cause they're bringing a 33 year old male in by ambulance. That's about all they know about him. Um, but they know he has three gunshot wounds to his abdomen. Um, you have very short notice. They're actually just down the street. They found him down in a parking lot. Um, they basically just threw on some dressings and rolled him in. So he appears in your emergency department. They blow him right into one of your trauma bays. And what you see is uh, a young, well-appearing male. Uh, he is awake, but he's, he's restless and kind of agitated. And he looks pale and diaphoretic. Um, they just throw him on the monitor and get some quick vitals. And his heart rate's about 140, looks to be sinus. His blood pressure's about 100 over 40 with a map of 65. He's satting 98. And you do see three obvious penetrating injuries to his abdomen. One's kind of in the left flank, one's in the left lower quadrant, uh, and one's in the right upper, right around the costal margin. He just got some gauze dressings on there. He has a 20-gauge IV in his left AC. What are your first steps, your first thoughts for getting this guy assessed and stabilized and on his way? Well, you're not going to like the answer, I think, for the purpose of this podcast, but this patient <laughs> should go directly to the operating room and nothing should be done by me. So what do you mean by nothing? I mean, literally nothing. <laughs> Just wave. So if, if, if the trauma team is there and the OR is ready, you would just roll them straight through the department. Absolutely. There, there's nothing I could offer that's not going to be an impediment to get where this guy needs to go. And I think in many trauma centers, there's this idea that resuscitation must occur prior to the operating room. I mean, in good trauma centers, the operating room is the resuscitation room for penetrating trauma. Uh, and anything you do is at the detriment of this patient's care. Now, look, you tell me trauma's not there yet. Okay, well, then we got some time. Maybe we'll do some stuff. But uh, if, if, all is as it should be. You got pre-notification, the trauma surgeon standing by, um, they heard it's a gunshot wound, maybe they even notified the OR that they might need a crash room. These patients just go. And in an ideal circumstance, that going is a span of like a, you know, a couple hallways, not 15 floors in a different building if you set your trauma center up correctly. So this patient should get all the resuscitation in the OR. All right. So not because they don't need resuscitation, but because that can be done by Simultaneous anesthesia. with all of the prepping that needs to go in to get into that abdomen. Okay. Now, let's say it's not an ideal world. They're probably not going to be ready, meaning the surgical team and the OR for oh, maybe 20 minutes. What would you use your time doing in the ED? All right. So a whole bunch of things would happen simultaneously. 
Um, so I'm going to say them in a discrete pattern, but understand I'm not putting one of these ahead of the other because I work with a trauma team. So all of this could happen at once. Now, this is a patient in many centers I think would already motivate a massive transfusion protocol. And at our place, we might very well do so as well. But we do have intermediate steps that allow us to really use blood products as an assessment in addition to a treatment. Now, we have blood and thawed plasma immediately adjacent to our trauma bay. So that's immediately available. Um, and I absolutely would start transfusing this patient gently. I, I don't remember the map on your vital signs. Remind 65-ish. me. 65-ish. Yeah. So I, I think he deserves a unit right off the bat. He's, he's where I want to be, but I'm anticipating that the bleeding's not stopping any time uh, that quickly. I'll, I'll push him a little bit harder. I'll take him up into the 70s just uh, for this initial resuscitative period. Uh, and we certainly would activate at least our intermediate blood product protocol, which just brings a cooler with... Um, you know, a few RBCs, a few uh, units of plasma. Um, but, you know, depending on how he looks beyond what you told me, I very well might activate the massive transfusion protocol at this very moment. Now, one of the other simultaneous things that's happening is we'd be getting a fast exam on this patient. And if it, the fast is positive, he, he ticks the boxes, massive transfusion would be activated. Um, and what that brings to our bedside that we don't have immediately available is platelets. So at the same time, I'd want a femoral arterial access on this patient. Uh, preferably right groin, though it doesn't matter as much. And that damn well better be in the common femoral artery uh, for all the other things we could do with that access when placed properly. And you guys jump in if you have any questions. or uh, What sort of line do you want to see in that fem? Okay. If I had my druthers, it would be an 18-gauge femoral art line. Uh, that would be the ideal uh, because that allows the placement of standard vascular access wires, and yet not so big that there's a chance of messing up that artery if you mess it up a little bit. Uh, you know, that's that happy balance. Now, we don't have 18-gauge. I either have 20-gauge or I have 16-gauge. Uh, and as a result, the uh, choice, you know, becomes more annoying. Our standard arterial access is a 20 gauge. That will not take vascular access wires. And uh, when you really need it, when you want to switch that to a Reboa, for instance, uh, and you're, you're most tense because the patient's about to go into a cardiac arrest, messing around with micropuncture kits to change that out to something that will take an 035 wire can be the difference between having arterial access and no longer having arterial access. So uh, I would love to have access to an 18-gauge, but on this patient, since I don't have that, I'm going to put in our 16-gauge cordis and use that as our femoral art line. So you're you're trying to set them up in case they need to go to, say, IR or get a Reboa, something like that? Exactly right. Now, in this case, okay. um, IR, unless the injury happens to be retroperitoneal, is probably not in his cards, though it's certainly a possibility that we'll still have on the table. But on this gent, Reboa, Seems like something really nice to have in my back pocket. And sure. so putting arterial access in now when he has a decent blood pressure that will take a Reboa uh, wire, uh, depending if you're using the old school, or will allow easy resizing with our standard um, vascular access wires to put in something bigger uh, is, is a really, really nice way to go. Okay. What about venous access? So I, and look, there's been many folks in the trauma resuscitation world that says, look, if we got two 16-gauge IVs, we're good. We'll stop there. Um, I like having central access, and uh, and I don't have too much problem putting it in. So I'm going to put a cordis in this patient. And, and 
off times, even though I'm team leader, I'll hand off that responsibility for three minutes and just place in a subclavian blind cordis because it, there's nothing quicker. And once that's in and sewn, I feel really confident about my vascular access. Now, there's a device called the RIC, a rapid infusion catheter that allows you to switch out this guy's 20 gauge if it was in the AC to something much bigger. But they're too big. And this is really the, the hell of it is that these lines, they come the smallest as a 7 French and it's also an 8.5. Um, those blow vessels quite commonly. Now, this is a young dude. If I put a tourniquet up, there's every chance I could switch this out for an 8.5 Rick peripherally and then sew that into his arm. And also, I consider a fairly durable access. Um, and that might be where I started on a guy like this, but I'd still put the cortis in if I had the time. If I'm not blocking the patient from going the OR, I don't really feel good until I have either a dialysis catheter or a cortis in a central vessel. Okay. In the FEM or in the subclavian? Well, I don't like the FEM as much personally for me because I, you know, this is a dying skill. Blind, blind subclavian access, unfortunately, most of our trainees in both the surgical and the emergency specialties don't get enough exposure to this because the attendings are risk adverse. They don't want the pneumothoraxes. It takes to learn this procedure. In the hands of someone who's gained their uh, flattening of their learning curve, the pneumothorax risk is incredibly low. But in the people at the very beginning of their learning journey, uh, there is quite a few pneumothoraces. Now, a good center just takes that as part of the learning bargain. Uh, where I train a shock trauma the first time around, because uh, I did two fellowships there because I'm a masochist. The first time around, which was <laughs> 15 years ago or something along those lines, uh, we were placing five or six subclavians a day. So you graduated that program uh, with at least a thousand subclavians under your belt. And that was because we were changing these lines out every time a patient spiked the temp, and then there would be a routine line change, you know, every five to seven days. It was insane. You know, like our entire life was placing subclaving lines. I went back at the, you know, 10 years after that, and we placed no lines at all. Um, we were using midlines and picks almost primarily. We'd place dialysis catheters, uh, but we'd want to use ultrasound, so we'd stay away from the subclavians. And that skill had died even in the sickest of the sick. So I don't fault a resident who, because the patient has a C-collar on, goes for femoral access as long as they're using ultrasound. That's where I draw the line. If I'm seeing blind sticks in the groin in a hypotensive patient, I've seen the disasters that ensue. So that is not acceptable. But I got no problem with ultrasound-guided uh, femoral access, but okay. in this patient, it might not be as clever because this patient has abdominal gunshot wounds. And if they box that IVC with one of those bullets, it doesn't seem like the smartest move to pour that blood into the peritoneum. So, uh, or the retroperitoneum rather. So I might say in this patient, since there's no really reason to think of a C-spine injury, it's a much more clever move. If you are only comfortable with ultrasound guided lines, just put ultrasound guided IJ. Scott, do you, uh, do you ever place ultrasound guided subclavians? I, I do, but not on a patient like this. You see my whole, but you're absolutely right. It's a wonderful procedure. But on a patient like this, the speed of, you know, and look, they're all, there's all going to be semi-sterile, right? Or, or AKA dirty. Um, the speed of me being able to get a subclavian dirty line without having to pick up an ultrasound probe on these patients is vastly desirable. Um, but most of my residents don't have access to a blind line that's safe. So they have to do what they have to do. Okay. Uh, are you giving TXA? You know, I'm still giving it as long as when in the first hour of injury. I don't even buy that three-hour stuff anymore based on the most recent literature. So I'll give it. I'm, I'm not that enthused it's making an enormous difference, um, but I'll give it if I remember with the first unit of blood in any trauma patient. So you no. give it empirically, not based on TEG? I, I don't know if TEG tells you the answer you want. It will absolutely, if there is 
tag apparent hyperfibrinolysis, it'll show that. So its specificity is good. I don't think it's picking up a bunch of the uh, subliminal uh, hyperfibrinolysis that's not at the threshold that tags going to see it. And I think you're probably missing patients that have some mortality sparing benefits. So, uh, and in general, the tag's not going to give you your fibrinolysis status for quite a while. You have right. to develop the full clot. So in the resus bay, I'd say give a gram uh, empirically to any trauma patient, as long as they haven't been on an outside hospital or rotting at the scene for more than an hour. I just I still give it. We'll see where more evidence emerges. My buddy Chris Hicks gives two grams empirically. Uh, I'm fine with the one. Okay. All right. Um, the trauma surgeon does turn up, and they take a look in the room, and they say, all right, let's go to the OR, and they do roll them down. So- you, um, you wash your hands, you see a few more patients in the ED, uh, an hour, hour and a half passes. And then one of the administrators comes and says, oh, Dr. Weingart, I'm so sorry, but things are just so crazy. You know, with COVID, half our staff is out. Um, I, I need you to actually cover the ICU for a little while. All right. Uh, we, we got someone to cover you in the ED here, but uh, there's no one upstairs. And you say, but, but, but they've already left. Yep, yep. Um, so you wander up and you, you kind of reorient yourself with the unit and you're just getting settled when the charge nurse says that your patient is coming back from the OR. And minutes later, they appear, they're intubated, they roll into one of the rooms and uh, uh, surgery and anesthesia is there. And they tell you, well, you know, we did a, a next lap. We did damage control surgery. Um, the liver is, is pretty beat up. We, we packed, we coagulated, um, we left him open. Um, he's got a wound vac on, still very oozy. Um, we did put a right-sided chest tube in. We didn't open the chest, but that's putting out a fair amount of blood. The vac's still putting out a fair amount of blood. Um, he got... He had an MTP running. He got about eight units of red cells down there, eight units of FFP, a pack of platelets, which in your hospital is about six units. He got one liter of crystalloid, and he was requiring vasopressors for the whole case. So surgery says, um, you know, get him resuscitated and stable. We'll go back maybe tomorrow. You All see right. the patient. Uh, he's on what in your unit is your max dose of norepinephrine, which is about 0.3 mics per kilo. His blood pressure is 80 over 40 with a MAP of 55. Heart rate's about 100. Um, he has a, um, a cortis in his left subclavian. He's got a radial A-line. And he's on the vent uh, on volume control AC with a volume of 500, a rate of 12, PEEP of 5, and 100% FiO2. What are your first thoughts here, your priorities? What do you kind of see going from here? All right. Well, this is a really bad situation. Uh, but before I even start evaluating the patient, the question I'd have for them is, did they stop by CT scan? And because I, I really want to know this patient's injury pattern. Now, depending on the trauma surgeons and what they saw in there, they may have just packed, not even evaluated whether there's any retroperitoneal injuries and just gotten out because the patient started looking oozy and crappy. And they're like, this guy's going to die on the table. Let's just get him resuscitated. Um, if I don't know the trajectory, and you said it was three bullets, if I recollect correctly, yeah. if I don't know where all of those have gone, um, if I was the trauma surgeon, I really would have probably wanted to stop by CT and figure out if we could evaluate. Now, after the damage control, uh, what what the future holds for us in terms of uh, additional injuries that we have not cited. Um, and on a patient like this, if they didn't, well then, 
uh, on our priority list is to do a tertiary survey and evaluate what has been missed. And things like, are all of the uh, limbs uh, being perfused ideally? Have they had any vascular injury that was missed during the initial foray into the abdomen? Do we need an angio of any of these patients? Because one of the bullets took out one of their iliacs, for instance. Um, So uh, did they stop at CTN? I imagine the answer is going to be no. So they were not able to scan them. Um, they sound semi-confident that they appreciated the major injuries, which right. is mostly a kind of that solid organ injury. They don't, they don't think there's anything arterial. They think the bleeding is essentially, quote unquote, medical at this point. <laughs> at some point, they would love a scan, but they didn't think that yeah. was stable. All right, fine. So, you know, and if I trust my surgeons, and hopefully at the center I would, I would, then uh, for now, I feel pretty good about that, and we'll see what we see. So uh, this patient needs labs ASAP. Uh, and again, these things are going to be done simultaneously, so don't think my order of priority is the order I'm saying them. But uh, And I'd ask my nurses, hey, do we still have that point of care machine, or is that fallen by the wayside? Uh, but very soon on, I'd want to know this patient's lactate. I'd like to know their calcium level. And uh, I'd like to know, you know, just in general, where they sit on their H&H and their INR. And if we had a tag, this is the time. I find it far more valuable in the post-damage control period than in the resuscitative period. It really now allows a targeted uh, progression for what products we're going to give next. Uh, I want to know a core temp ASAP, because if this guy is cold, we need to remedy that as one of our first priorities. And then the situation of him requiring vasopressors this early on, because I imagine it's probably uh, not too much further than uh, 90 minutes or maybe 120 after his initial hitting the door. Does that sound about right? Yeah, around there. Yeah. So I am, you know, he might be in the throes of the uh, post-trauma SERS response, but it's also an excellent chance he's severely under-resuscitated. So um, along with those labs and a tag and knowing core temp and calcium um, and then the lactate for his acidosis status will give me the milieu we're actually dealing with. Okay. Um, they t- get a temp. It's 35-ish. What okay. are you doing to warm Not horrible. I put a blanket warmer on him, but I'm not going to go crazy like I would if you told me his temp was 30 because that's a patient who is in the huge midst of um, cold-induced uh, coagulation. Okay. Detriment. You get an ionized calcium. It's 1.0. Okay, now you have to tell me the units in your hospital. Is that good or not? Normal is over like 1.2. Okay, so we just give him a, a calcium chloride right off the bat. Okay, amp calcium chloride just yep. pushed. Uh, slow push, yeah. Absolutely. Slow push. Yep. Okay, um, let's see. The They run a lactate and it's eight. Okay, and one of your respiratory therapists pulls off an ABG and it's a pH of 7.15. The CO2 is 40. A PO2 is about 250. And the bicarb is about 11. Okay. So we now know what we're working with here. Let's increase that respiratory rate. Let's take some compensatory uh, respiratory alkalosis, help with our acidosis. Um, and then- So you would leave the vent as it is, go up on the rate, try to blow it down. Yeah, remi- so remind me what they, I remember uh, the- uh, 512, PIPA 5, 100%. Yeah, well, let's see. If, and what was the uh, PAO2 on that blood gas? 250. Okay, so let's go down to like 50% uh, and let, let's knock up the respiratory rate quite significantly. You know, let's knock okay. them up to 22 or something like that. Okay. Um, so the blood pressure is still maps 55 ish. What are you doing about it? Yeah. So he red cells right off the bat, even before these lab come, come back. Um, but the calcium, you know, usually if they are hypocalcemic, I'll see a quite durable effect on their hemodynamics that will enamor me of giving more of that. Uh, do I have any positive feedback from that calcium we give? They push the calcium. Um, he seemed to get a bump in his pressure. He gets to a map of a little over 60, and then it keeps kind of trending down. Yep. And you said he's on his max dose of norepi is his only... Yeah, 0.3. Yep. Okay. Now, what does his heart look like on echo? Because I would already have this probe in my hand. Okay. So you'd, you'd throw on the ultrasound. Um, 
hard to get great windows. He's got a big vac on his abdomen. You're able to get a little bit of a parasternal. It looks okay. Hyperdynamic. Um, you don't really see an effusion. You don't know if you could say a whole lot more than that. All right, fair enough. So then uh, inotropes are not really in the cards in this immediate period here. Uh, now, my preference on trauma patients is to have vasopressin as the backbone of my vasopressor strategy. Now, it runs out of runway pretty quick. You don't have the titratability you'd want uh, in terms of range from something like norepi. But I would add vasopressin to this guy right off the bat at 0.04, um, see if that can make me knock down some of my norepi. And because the emerging literature is saying that trauma patients right from the get are vasopressin depleted, that for whatever reason, that milieu puts these patients at a vasopressin depleted state. So let's get some vasopressin on there. Okay. Are now, are you treating in your mind um, some degree of distributive shock just from some SIRS and stress, or are you bridging to uh, further transfusion for hemorrhagic shock? Yeah, so it's both. And you know we're right in that period of where SIRS is going to become our uh, looming enemy. But like I said, early on, you know, I think that I, my personal preference uh, is to uh, think they're under-resuscitated when they come out of the OR from a damage control uh, until it's proven to me that they're not. And uh, so this guy, and, uh, you know, we had labs back. Did we get a hemoglobin back? Uh, yeah, it's six. Okay. So now we know, we know we have space for it. Um, you know, based on the degree of crystalloid, that's probably even uh, a degree of uh, lack of overall volume contributing to what is already a low number. So, uh, you know, red cells are absolutely in this gent's future. And, um, and I, I want to wean these vasopressors back as much as possible and then have him prove to me that this is indeed a vasodilated state. And this is not just the pressors filling in for bad or bad is the wrong word, uh, for under resuscitation due to the exigency of what they were doing in the operating room. Uh, now, now skin temp will give you some degree of feeling about that as well. As you start pulling back on your vasopressors, um, you know, I want to get a patient whose extremities are warm. And and that's going to be a, a, a back and forth of more product, less vasopressor, more product, less vasopressor, until I could get warm, perfused peripheries. And that that is like a quick and dirty way of letting me know that we're starting to get in the zone I want, which is a patient whose vessels are open and yet still maintain a map. And it would be great to do that uh, pretty quickly because the longer we leave them in the throes of hyperperfuse shock, I think the long the more we beget the coagulation uh, triad, or I guess uh, quatrad. Now that we add calcium to that mix, uh, you know that is I think the major force that feeds that fire, um, and it's underappreciated that, and it's probably due to gut translocation and ill humors due to a whole host of organs that aren't getting perfusion. But when you show me even, forget about a patient on vasopressors like this one, when you show me a young patient uh, who comes in from the door and their extremities are ice cold and they have a map of 75, you might feel reassured on that patient, but you shouldn't. Because they are maintaining that map of 75 by an incredible, like a Herculean amount of endogenous vasoconstriction. And they are getting nothing to their gut. They're getting nothing to their extremities. They are putting all of their power to perfusing heart, lung, and brain. That is what is begetting their coagulopathy of trauma. And, you know, according to my mentor, Rick Dutton, you got to reverse that as soon as possible or else these patients will succumb. 
Right. So it's a sort of time-sensitive positive feedback sort mm -hmm. of thing. So you're uh, you're transfusing to try to bring down the pressure requirement, just a blood pressure goal? Blood pressure and, you know, hemoglobin becomes a more uh, important arbiter as you are in the post uh, resuscitative period. It means jack in the resuscitative period. They, you have to, you know, get them uh, some volume on board to actually see where you sit. But uh, you, you know, if they're less than seven or eight in the state they come out of the operating room, that they need more oxygen carrying capacity. But I would still keep doing a balanced transfusion on these guys until I have some TEG values that will uh, give me uh, some better targets. So, you know, I'd probably give this guy a unit of blood and then a unit of plasma. And then uh, based on what they described, he probably could use a unit of platelets and then see where we live. Okay. So you, you do add the vasopressin, uh, you give some calcium, and you're able to bring down your norepinephrine dose to about 0.1, and he has a nice response, but it keeps kind of trending down again. And as you've been standing in there, um, after about half an hour, you've had a total of um, almost a liter more blood between the, the wound vac and that right chest tube. Um, you're transfusing from your massive transfusion protocol. Um, are you giving cryo at any point? You know, I, I would want to have a fibrinogen level by now, certainly. Um, but, you know, early on in recess, you know, for the blunt, I mean, you guys made it easy. Get them the hell out of my bay uh, with the penetrating. But blunt, I think people are underappreciating uh, the value of having fibrinogen early and often. And, uh, you know, depending on your plasma, it might have a, a good amount of fibrinogen, it might have garbage amount of fibrinogen. And absolutely, uh, you know, and if you didn't have a fibrinogen back because it takes a long time in your lab, giving this patient empiric, you know, 10 units of cryo or better yet, if you have a fibrinogen concentrate would be a wonderful way to go. So this is either based on levels or from TEG? Exactly right. If you have your TEG back or, yeah, it would either be levels, TEG or empiric, depending on what your hospital has and its rapidity. What's the level you would want to get them to? At least 150. Okay. Um, and if, if he's super oozy, maybe even push it to 200. Is there ever a time you'd give additional platelets above your normal ratio? Only, only based on TEG, not, not beyond okay. that. All right. Um, what about PCCs, K-Centra, as we would say here? Yeah. So again, it all depends on your blood bank, uh, their capability and amount of platelets and how rapid they could get them to you. Uh, and... I'm sorry, plasma rather, uh, because some centers, and even us, we're, we're a major trauma center, and for some days, they just tell us we're out of thawed plasma. It's going to be 40 minutes. Well, forget that. I will just give a box of PCC, and uh, I'm forgetting. You know, I wish I had the reference, um, but my recollection is a thousand unit box is somewhere around six to eight plasma equivalents. Well, you're getting an amazing bang for the buck out of that, and then there are the patients I'd empirically go for PCC, even if thawed plasma was available. And those are the patients who uh, were behind. So if, you know, they came from an outside hospital, they got six units of blood, no plasma. Well, it's going to take me a long time to get that deficit made up. And I will just give them a box of PCC at the start and then start one-to-one -to, -one to one from there. And then obviously your Coumadin players, what you want to do is reverse them with a uh, fixed dose PCC and then start your one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one on top of that because then the one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one just makes up for ongoing loss, but you want to get rid of that Coumadin. So in many cases, I'm giving PCC right off the bat. And then 
my feeling is, and again, I don't have great literature for this, but for cirrhotics who come in, who already are really behind the eight ball, cirrhotic trauma is a really losing game. Uh, I will give them PCC and plasma right off the bat, even before I got to my critical administration threshold uh, in a normal patient. Okay. Uh, are you giving more TXA? Did you start a drip? Or I am not, unless there is hyperthyroidolysis on the TEG. Okay. So you're not routinely putting them on the I whatever, don't. I don't 10 do the drip or anymore. Whatever. Okay. Okay, what about um, activated factor seven? Is that ever appearing? I, I think in your at this stage of the game, that is a medication looking for an indication, and I'll tell you why. Um, the primary thing it does, as you'd imagine from the name, is it affects factor seven levels. So it's a wonderful way to change the lab value of an INR, but I don't think it's actually repleting all the clotting factors that are necessary to make great clots long term, um, but it will make your INR better. I don't think that's a reason to give it. I think there is harm. I think there's potential for clotting. I've been in the operating room where we've given it and the bleeding has stopped that we weren't able to stop otherwise, and it seems like a miracle, but all of the literature just points in a negative direction. Uh, We're not using it at all anymore, especially in the days where you have, first of all, you have PCC easily available, but the product that uh, most people don't remember, but was here for like decades, is uh, four-factor PCC with an activated factor seven component, and that's still around as well, and I'd give that before I'd give... uh, just straight up uh, Novo 7 at this stage of the game. But I, don't, I wouldn't even do that latter situation. I can't really think of what I want. Um, would, you do, would you do any auto-transfusion if you're able to salvage blood from maybe your chest tube? Okay, such a great question. Auto-transfusion uh, was a, a, a real fight to get at my previous center, my previous EDICU and trauma center. And I, I had a fight to get the right add-on to our uh, – chest tube evacuation system so we could actually auto-transfuse blood. And I was super excited and we finally got it done and we did a few cases on it and it was great. You know, we just, we got the addition that allowed us to immediately hang it and I felt so good about myself uh, until an article was published demonstrating that there are no clotting factors whatsoever in that auto-transfuse blood. Um, It essentially is merely PRBC. So the idea that you're giving back whole blood unfortunately did not bear out. What's sitting in that pleural cavity, the second it touches that space, uh, for whatever reason, it is essentially PRBC. It is not whole blood anymore. Yeah, it kind of throws off your ratio. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and like, what's the gain? The gain was that you had whole blood, you wouldn't have to worry about clotting factors and platelets. Now, if it's just PRBC, I'd rather just give what the blood bank has, just because it's a logistical nightmare. It's under-preserved. Uh, it's under-stabilized from the clotting perspective, unless you fill up your uh, you know additional evacuation system with a preservative, which is a crap show. It wasn't worth it at that point. If it's just PRBC, I'd rather just give the PRBC. The far more interesting question is, should centers adopt whole blood? And shock trauma has, uh, my current center has not. It's a logistical nightmare. It's a storage nightmare, but it is much better from all reports, from both the literature, the battlefield, and from the American centers that are using it. Okay. Um, so let's say you're massively transfusing, you're between your maybe third and fourth cooler of blood, but you really just blew through those ones. You're out of blood and the blood pressure is trending down again. You're yeah, they got to go back to the OR at this point. Hopefully I've done my job. Their calcium's good. Their uh, temp is good. Their, I don't know what the INR is, but I, at that point, I don't care. Uh, I've done my part. Uh, if, they're, if they're putting out that much, it's time for the repeat trip and a relook to find out what's actually bleeding. Well, so... Um, in the meantime, if you don't have more blood at the bedside, are you going up in your pressors or are you giving crystalloid or, I mean, neither? 
I, I mean, look, I'll accept on a patient like you described, I'll accept a lower MAP goal before I'd want to go up on my vasopressors or give crystalloid. Um, and there- Which would you do first? I'd probably give some hypertonic fluid first, to be perfectly honest. Like albumin? Or? No, like a 3% saline. Oh, okay. um, uh, you know, if you have it, the, the nice thing is the 7% balance. They do half NACL and half NA acetate. We had that available for us um, at the ICU. I worked at a shock trauma. Uh, and, and that's a really nice volume resuscitation product. No reason to give albumin simply because you're better off just giving the plasma if you want the albumin. So what map do you tolerate? You said you tolerate a lower. Yeah, I, I'd so easily if if they <laughs> if they've given me the indication they're coming, but they're like you know where where it'll be like twenty minutes before we get there, then yeah, I'll tolerate yeah. fifty on this guy without too much problem. Map of fifty. Um, if, if it's going to be you know no, we disagree with you. We're not taking it back for a few hours. Um, maybe maybe fifty five. Uh, you know. Because again, I, do I want a low map? No, but people conflate not wanting a low map with doing dumb shit, uh, which it may be even worse. So uh, I, I don't want to leave him there for any period of time. But giving this guy enormous amounts of vasopressin and crystalloid is not going to be the answer. But honestly, if, if you're a good trauma center, it shouldn't be that long before you have products at the bedside. And I'd much prefer to continue the balanced transfusion with a guy who's still obviously bleeding. Now, if the bleeding seems to have stopped, if my vacs are not putting out much, the uh, field seems dry, it's not pushing through the vac, it's a different story. Okay, maybe this is now the emerging doom of a massive SERS response. And that that's going to be an entirely different picture. But the picture you're painting right now of a patient still bleeding, um, they need to go somewhere and make that bleeding stop. Well, so that, that, that's the question, I think. So how, in a patient like this who comes to you because they're, you know, according to the surgeons, their surgical thing is done for now, it's a medical problem, how do you know if and when it's a surgical problem again? How do you know if they've, you know, sprung a new leak or they just need to be reevaluated or you need to go for imaging or whatever versus just what you've been doing, which is trying to correct their coagulopathy and catch up with their hypovolemia? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... It- First of all, if they're putting out a big volume, then that, that's an indication that that's not medical bleeding anymore. Something uh, amenable to surgical treatment is going on. Um, and if they tell me, look, we don't want to go back to the OR now, then I might push to do uh, a CT and get a CT angio of that abdomen and see, you know, is there a retroperitoneal injury that wasn't appreciated early on that actually is the source of this? You know, did they take out a kidney um, or something along those lines? So I got to do something if they're putting out a big volume. And I'm pretty heavy handed in my resuscitation early on with products. If I can't keep up, that's another indication something's going on because medical bleeding in general you know, if you're in a trauma center to get you what you need, you could keep up with it. If you can't keep up with it, that's a problem. Uh, that should be an indication for a further search for injury pattern. Uh, and especially in a patient with three gunshot wounds, um, you know, I've witnessed how tough it is to really do an assessment in a patient who's really trying hard to exsanguinate um, from gunshot wounds. You know, sometimes, yeah, you see everything and sometimes you don't. And on this patient, I truly suspect something else is going on. And it could have been that the patient was so hypotensive that whatever was bleeding now wasn't bleeding then. And they're absolutely right. They didn't see anything, but now something that requires operative management is going down. So bleeding in excess of a, a well-executed massive transfusion protocol is at least a soft indication for re-exploration. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. And I, I, at the centers I've worked at, the trauma centers of excellence, I wouldn't be the one pushing for this. They would have been back at the bedside a half hour after they came out. We'd look at it together 
They'd say, I think we need to go back. I wouldn't have to be the one pushing this. Okay. Now, I, I guess the flip side of that question is the surgeons truly don't think there's anything else surgical they should they can do. This is either something you can fix medically or it's not. Uh, at what point would you decide a case like this is futile? Oh, never. <laughs> so you would transfuse until you run out of blood. Well, I mean, look, I, it luckily has not played that way in the ones I've had, but I, I don't pull on young people uh, who came in with a good premorbid state. Uh, it, it's just really hard for me to do it. There, you know, we. I come from a tradition, you know, the shock trauma center is you don't die until you're on ECMO and you're in suspended animation because we don't give up. Now that, that could really hurt you when the patient who had the trauma is an 85 year old with really diminished ADLs. You know, that's where, that was the negative side of that. And, you know, I think when you have a center that has that philosophy, they don't pull back as hard when it should be palliative. But on a young patient like this, there there is no futility. He's going to code, and then we're going to code him, and then he's going to come back, and he's going to have to code again and again before we give up on him. And maybe that's the wrong way to play, but we just did not give in the game until the game was taken from us on a young person. All right. All right, well, great work. You saved his life. Mm. Uh, Brian, any thoughts? What are your questions? <laughs> Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I like what you said about uh, tolerating low maps and uh, and resuscitation, uh, altering sort of altering your endpoints rather than just keep flogging away um, for a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, I think these these sorts of patients are uh, you know obviously very much critical care patients, but not like not super well understood by a lot of of ICU types unless they see a lot of trauma because it's a very specific thing. The other only other case might be like a you know massive GI bleed or it's a kind of medical equivalence, but a really big trauma resuscitation and all these little details are. I, I mean, I suppose the trauma folks understand it better, but they're usually more on kind of their in their surgical realm than sitting around in the ICU you know transfusing yeah. people. So it's kind of a specialty area. We were talking, we were laughing the other day uh, at the the definition of massive transfusion. I think it's 10, 10 units of reds in 24 hours, uh, you know, and for a center like ours that does a lot of trauma and a lot of liver transplants, uh, yeah, 10, 10 units of reds in 24 hours is pretty routine. That's like Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I've given 10 units of reds in an hour before, so. Absolutely. So, Scott, um, anything else that you think we should really take away from this? What should we remember as we uh, go off and see the maybe even occasional trauma in particular? I mean, it's funny because you take a runner and they get to where their body is telling them, you've given it all you got. You got nothing left. There's nothing in the tank. Stop. And that happens at about 60% of your actual capacity. And there's another 40% in the tank that like runners actually know that they have to tell their body, shut the hell up and keep going because they're not even close to their threshold. I think what people think is their resuscitative tempo and capacity for actually putting in the work on super sick patients is uh, probably that same 60%. When you think you're going at max, I'm doing everything I can for this patient. Yeah, you're about at 60% of what you could do. You got to push harder 
got to do more. You got to actually increase. You got to stress your system to take care of really sick patients. That's one thing I'll say. And then the second thing I'll say is uh, sick trauma patients don't take a joke. A lot of a lot of patient categories do, and you can get away with half-assed resuscitation. And they'll come back. Uh, they'll they'll give you uh, some leeway to you know mess around and not do what's right. Uh, sick trauma patients do not, and so you have to be on game from the moment they get there and be putting in your all. This is not the patient that you could just uh, leave to the uh, third year surgery resident and have like a phone tag to figure out if they're okay or not. You need to be at the bedside every minute of this patient's post-operative course when they come out of a damage control operation uh, until they're cool. And then you could go get a drink, but uh, this requires maximal effort. Yeah, that's well said. I remember one of my first big cases like this, I, uh, for most of a like 12 hour ICU shift, I not only didn't leave the room, I didn't sit down. Damn straight. <laughs> 10 hours or something like that. Uh, all right. Well, that was awesome. Uh, and that's very well said. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott. Yeah, it was a pleasure, um, guys. Can't wait to hear this. Away from it. All right. And uh, we'll see the rest of you guys in a couple weeks.